the truth is, is that we hated cover bands. <laughs> we would never have said, let's be a tribute band. And it was gospel preachers that were singing a lot of this material, Blind Willie Johnson and people like that, Sunhouse. Hello and welcome to the Aussie Floyd podcast. I'm David Dominey Fowler and I am here with an old friend of the band, someone we toured with in 2015 all around North America, Paul Camp from Led Zeppelin 2. Paul, how you doing, mate? I'm great, Dave. I really appreciate uh, that we can chat for a while today. I've got some great fond memories of, uh, of us two touring together, uh, our bands touring together. So have you... Let's start there. Have you, is that something you've done before or done since? Is that is that is that, a, is that an odd thing? Us two touring together was quite odd from us because we very rarely play with other bands. Is that something you've done? You know, honestly, we are typically in the same position. We we play a long show, and you know we'll play for two hours, fifteen minutes on most nights, and some nights it'll go beyond that. Um, Playing together with you guys, playing the, the size of the venues, and for that length of a tour, it was really a treat for us. I know we had to squeeze our show into the first, what did, what did we have, 50 minutes or 55 minutes? Um, yeah, so yeah. It, it, was, it was a bit different for us in that aspect, but it was still great fun just traveling around, you know, getting to the city, taking a look around the venue, seeing everybody roll out of the buses and... Um, you know, I I really enjoyed it. I watched you guys every single night. I didn't miss a night. I would I would typically miss the first song and a half because I was just changing over into my it's regular. Just, uh, yeah, it's just like we we saw. Um, most of us saw, and I pretty much saw the first forty minutes of your show, <laughs> and then. But it's not that we couldn't hear you. I mean, that's the thing. It's even in the dressing rooms we could uh, we could hear you. Uh, you ended with Stairway, didn't you? No, we. Uh, Stairway was earlier. We ended it with whole lot of love. But I don't know. There's something about um, about Stairway when um, anyone remember laughter when he say that was that the right line? The, the well, that was that was one of the lines that always gets some yeah. kind of a response, and, and it at gets least. a response. And, and, and I, I remember at times where I'd be walking around to to where the sounds mixed from at front of house, or I'd be at the side of the stage or whatever, or, or even just sort of walking past catering or something. And you'd hear him say that, and this big roar of the crowd, and it would. It would fill me with excitement. I thought, "Oh, we're going to be out there in about an hour." You know, it's it's. Yeah. Um, but I only ever got to watch the first half of the show, or something like that, or the first forty minutes. So, well, we definitely have very fond memories of that tour. Uh, you know, there were some things that we hadn't really experienced before, like the nice catering. <laughs> we we've done um, we've done other stadium shows. Um, you know, we've played with. The year after that, we did a run with the uh, sticks for a few shows, but it right. was it was only a few nights, and they didn't have nearly the catering set up <laughs> for us that you guys had for us. So I, I think it says a lot about us uh, how, the emphasis on the luxuries. You know, I think oh uh, no, you know the yeah. bus the buses could be awful, but if the catering was bad, we'd all have something to say. <laughs> I wanted to know how you started because I don't think that really came up much in our conversations on the road well, why did you choose led zeppelin you know who started the band and, and tell me a bit of the history of of you guys well you know when i was a kid i had picked up some book the led zeppelin songbook and i was 
probably 10, 11 years old, and I had figured out all the tunings right. for the acoustic songs for That's the Way and for Bronier. And in my previous, uh, well, one of my previous groups, using a bow was something that I naturally did. And it wasn't even because Jimmy Page did it or because we wanted to be like Led Zeppelin. I just liked the sound of it, and we incorporated that in some of the songs. And, you know, I also grew up, you know, in Chicago, listening to blues music and being from the South Side, actually having some interaction with some of the, uh, you know, some of the local legends. My dad had a shop on the South Side, and so we would buy these blues 45s and knowing you know, the one, four, five, 12 bar and 16 bar blues patterns and pentatonic scale. And I think all of that stuff prepared me for then doing this Led Zeppelin thing. We never really set out intentionally to do it. We never had the idea, oh, let's do a Led Zeppelin cover band. Actually, we, we did a Halloween show one time as Black Sabbath, not as Led Zeppelin. And Somebody came along and they were like, wow, you guys are really good at that. And the truth is, is that we hated cover bands. <laughs> we would never have said, let's be a tribute band. And then we did it again. We were invited by this uh, rock critic named Jim DeRogatis in Chicago to play at his book party. He had written a book about the, um, the rock critic Lester Bangs. And Black Sabbath was one of Lester Bangs' favorite groups. So we did that. And then some another guy named Ray Quinn who owns a club called Martyrs, he came out and he said, you guys know how good you are at that? And we thought, well, <laughs> okay, well, thank you. And then the following year on thanks at, um, at Halloween, they asked us to do it again and we didn't even tell them, but we decided to switch it to Led Zeppelin. And it was the biggest show that this venue had ever had. There were more people crammed into that room than they'd ever had. And then we started to look at ourselves like, well, maybe we should do this again. And so then the invites started to roll in. And you know, before, before you knew it, we were getting an offer from the House of Blues in Chicago, which is a 1,500-seat venue. And so it was the most people that we were playing to on a regular basis because all of our, all of our other bands were our own original bands. And th the main thing that I think we we caught from the audience that they were just simply having a really good time. Everybody was smiling and they were singing the words and whatever hesitancies we may have had about devoting our time and our, you know, and our musical aspirations to being a tribute band kind of vanished when we just saw everybody really enjoying it. And then with you know, this was already in the last decade you know, and then about, I think, eight years ago, we went off and we did our first shows on the road in Boston and New York City and in Texas. And, you know, for example, the first time we played in Houston, Texas, we played at a big venue, 1800 capacity venue, and it was close to sold out. So we just just decided, okay, let's keep doing it. it it's just been a really natural flowing thing for us. It's funny you say we that because really Steve um, and Jason over the years, you know, when I've talked to them about Ozzy Floyd and, and I've heard them in interviews. In fact, in our first podcast, I think they said it. They said that what happens is, is you start out 
doing one thing and then it kind of takes over and sweeps you along. It's not like you're even trying to push it in a certain direction or a, or you've got a goal that you specifically want to achieve. Um, what happens is, is, you know, because of the audience reaction, as you said, it just kind of sweeps you along. And before you know it, you're kind of, I think one of them once described it as like being in this boat and as long as it's you know heading in the right direction, you just kind of go with it and uh, <laughs> you've got no control over where the waves take you. That sounds about right, you know. Be- and then before you know it, you're you're designing Jimmy Page costumes. <laughs> you, you're a founder member of it. So who was in it yeah. first? Who were the founder members? Well, I had a group called Busker Soundcheck, and we were an original group that had some success. Uh, you know, we sold you know a few thousand records. We did some touring. We were around for quite a while. We were a pretty big name in Chicago in the '90s, and uh, you know, into the early part of the 2000s. Um, we we started with three guys from Busker Soundcheck and Bruce, our singer. And we didn't even have a name. We would just go and set up a gig somewhere. We would leave it up to the venue to even decide how they wanted to promote it, and it and it always went quite well. And then over the years. You know the the costumes developed early on. We we did play some shows where we just walked in to the venue and just played in the clothes that we were wearing. And honestly, those went pretty well too. And we probably could have gone that route. The thing that we had access to is Bruce's sister. It does a theatrical performance called Million Dollar Quartet, which is about music, and they were all about the costumes and the look on the stage. You know, because we had access to costume designers, that that kind of made the decision for us. You know, let's just we'll give the people the show. You know, at, in the end, it, we come out on stage looking like that, but it's all about us playing the music. And uh, so, at the end of the day, when you've got that kind of resource, you're not going to ignore it. You know, that it would it would probably be foolish to as well, considering Led Zeppelin were quite a a visual band as people in the way that. Um, Pink Floyd would. Yeah, the the visual part of it was definitely it, and and I think the way that we honestly see it is we kind of laugh at ourselves every time before every show. We're like, here we are again. Look at us. <laughs> I've got some into, great pictures into costumes. of you. <laughs> I've got some great pictures of you. Um, well, in fact, one of my favourite pictures of my '72 uh, Tele Custom is of you playing it because you used it at a few shows um, in the open tuning. And I've got a great one where I was down in the pit taking pictures. And you probably thought I was taking pictures of you, but I was actually taking pictures of my guitar. But um, <laughs> that's, that's one of my, fa- okay. my favorite picture of, of, of my 72 Custom is actually, is actually you playing it um, on stage. And it looks fantastic. And you do look good as well. You're in your full costume everything. And you do look like a rock star playing it. And I, th- I look at that picture and think, that's a... That's a lovely guitar. That's a, but that, it works though. But it does work again. It's it's the. I mean, do you feel to to do it properly? I suppose the fans have to suspend reality a little bit when they the same as they do with us. Um, you you must get some people who, but the vast majority of people are happy to kind of leave reality at the door and walk in and say, "Look, I know they're not Led Zeppelin, or I, in our case, I know they're not Pink Floyd, but." Yeah, do you find many snobs or, or any anything like that coming along to your gigs, or are they just drowned out in the noise of the people that love it? Mm. <laughs> oh, 
you know what? I, I remember one time we were playing a show and some girl walked up to me after the show and she was looking me up and down and <laughs> seemed like she was having a bit of a critical moment. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> I generally, we, you know what? The, the people accept it. I, I mean, people know that it's, it's just our get up for the show. We stay inspired and motivated to keep doing it because we'll have people that will come up after the show and they'll say, my friends dragged me here and I thought it was going to suck. And, you know, I don't, I don't go out and see tribute bands, but boy, you guys, you know, you, you really did a good job and I had a great time. And so I'm glad I came. And isn't that Those fantastic? Those kind of comments will go a long ways towards you. Because you're, you're turning their heads. I don't, I don't mind if someone's expecting it to be crap and then it turns out being really good. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's the biggest compliment you can get in a, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it seems to me that's how a lot of articles start with uh, with that line. Well, I went along expecting it to be X, and then ended up with it being Y. So, um, so could it could it have been another band that you did a tribute to? Could it have been something other than Led Zeppelin? Are there any other bands that you go? Well, that's the yeah. It could just as easily have been um, you know Queen or. <laughs> Yeah, Cohen. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure who it would be. I mean, you hear what I play in Soundcheck every night. I'm always playing Rush songs, but it's it's not like you're just going to find somebody that can sing like Geddy Lee and, and put together your Rush tribute band. Um, I mean, I love Rush, uh, and I could I could probably do a lot of that material if I ever had an opportunity. You know, I really like um, you know the Jeff Beck group. But again, if you were going to put together a band like that, it would really be more of a kind of freeform, you know, blues and, and rock fusion kind of a thing. Um, putting together another tribute, ah, boy, I don't really know. I mean, we, we really enjoyed doing the Black Sabbath you know, just because of the, the riffs are so fun to play. Um, definitely not nearly as challenging in terms of dynamics or the solos because Tony Iommi seems to play a slightly revised version of the same solo in just about every song. So, <laughs> so um, once you've learned you know, one, then uh, <laughs> you've got most of them down. Yeah, I, I say to people, learn everything in chronological order because l the later on songs, you'll find that people re revisit what they did in earlier work so you don't have to learn as much. So always learn yeah. things in chronological order. It's, That's uh, good. I like that. Yeah. So... Obviously, it is Led Zeppelin. You've chosen Led Zeppelin, and, and you're you're very good at doing it. What what are your what are the songs that you you love doing that you're looking forward to for whatever reason? What what are the things that make your night? Yeah, I like the you know the more challenging and longer arrangements. Uh, if if people would ask me that song, typically I would say Achilles' Last Stand, which is. It really, it's extremely difficult to play that song in one pass because there's so many overdubs on it. But I figured out a way to do the triple track climbing parts right. early on with this group. And, and if I ever would have a chance to meet Jimmy Page, I'd kind of like to show him, like, look what I figured out. You, know, you can do all three parts with one guitar. Um, and some of the other sections in that, it's so linear. The guitar never does, never repeats the same thing for very long, and there's always yet another part coming. I really enjoy doing In My Time of Dying. 
And we didn't get to do either of those songs on the tour that we did with you guys, just because of a matter of time constraint. You know, I really enjoy the song remained the same, especially when we get to go right into the Rain song. You know, the Rain song is just a fantastic guitar composition. I, every time I play that song, I wonder, how did Paige even figure this out, you know? What made him even think of this? And, you know, like the Lemon song is always really fun because it's got, it's so loose. Uh, and it, you know, it really whips the crowd up. Uh, you know, the slow parts and then the fast parts and back and forth. Um, you know, anything on physical graffiti, really. I really like just some of the basic rockers on that record, Custard Pie and The Rover. I love the song Sick Again. Not My, my bandmates don't share that as much as I do. But um, There's always one even, song. There's always one song that, that someone specifically really, really loves and the rest of the band uh, just aren't into doing it. We have, a, we have a few of those moments every year and you know when it comes around to, oh, what are we going to do this year in the mainstay of our set? And someone will suggest something i'm not going to mention the songs now but someone will suggest something that the rest of us kind of go no and every year it's a no we're not going to do that that's well and that's true and even right there the songs that i just mentioned as the ones that i really enjoy i don't think we played any of those songs when we did that tour with you guys because it was you know summer amphitheater given the hits kind of a set that's true and I, i must say your version of cashmere was just uh Every time I heard you do that, it was just it was so powerful. I, I love that song as well. It's such a such a massive sounding song, and your guitar tone on that was just absolutely impeccable. In mm, fact, in general, wow. I thought your guitar tones were impeccable. We will come on to some guitar bits in a minute, but you did say something there. You said if you haven't had the chance to meet Jimmy Page, have you met any of the members of Led Zeppelin or any of members of your band met any of the members of Led Zeppelin? Yeah, <laughs> There was a recent uh, meeting of our singer, Bruce Lamont, and Robert Plant, and they met at Thalia Hall. And the thing about Plant is he's just, he's out and about. You know, he's, I think he just turned 70, but he still likes to hang out and go into record shops. And, you know, he had lunch just a couple doors over from my wife's deli. In fact, we think... He was heading up. He was with John Langford. We thought they might have actually been coming to my wife's deli that day, but we were closed on Tuesday, and it was a Tuesday. And he ended up eating lunch just a couple doors over. But then he had a show the next night. But he was hanging out with his band. They all went out to see another band over at a place called Thalia Hall. And Bruce I know that place. <laughs> is, yeah, Bruce is one of the, you know, one of the yeah. managers over there. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and Robert walked in with his group, dressed in black with his hair pulled back and like the man bun kind of a thing. And here's our singer, Bruce, dressed in black with his hair pulled back and the man bun kind of thing. I'm sure the entire staff of the place was watching these two guys in the room, waiting to see if there would be some interaction. And Plant walked right up to Bruce and ordered drinks for his whole group. And Bruce, as the story goes, Bruce didn't even say anything at first. And at the end of the exchange, he said, uh, Mr. Plant, I just you know, thought I might mention, I play you in a Led Zeppelin cover band. And the two of them started laughing. And, and Plant's his question to Bruce uh, was, 
do you have any original material? He wanted to know if we had written any songs in the Led Zeppelin style that he could hear. And I'm sure he'd listen to it too. I think he seemed, I wasn't there, but it sounded like, you know, the, the meeting was pretty good natured. And uh, so Plant definitely knows that who we are. And I'm sure that, I'm sure Paige would have had, have had to have, you know, seen some things about us on the internet. He seems like he's very inquisitive and he's just really constantly involved in promoting the legacy of the band. So generally we would think if they if they met us they'd probably like it pretty good uh, we were in town one night when the when them crooked vultures were playing at another venue and you know our names were both listed in all the magazines and on the marquees and stuff so i'm i'm sure jones knows that we're around but if we do get a chance to meet or you know have them come out to a show it would certainly be like the icing on the cake but that that's something that we really plan for or aspire for so what um changing subjects slightly what have you got in your guitar setup these days tell me about your uh, your guitar setup because i love the tones you had and you've you've got great gear so talk me through what you're using at the moment yeah starting with the amps the i have uh 19 mid 70s uh jmp heads the one of them actually said Super Lead 100 on the back of it, and it was a, a no master volume head when I first got it. But the, I mean, the truth is, is that it was just—it's too loud, you know. Even in stadiums, you just can't turn that turn that that particular amplifier up. So I tried a few different things, ended up turning it into, you know, the rough equivalent of a JMP master volume 100 so they're both 100 watt heads over the years i've tweaked some of the components on the inside tweaked some of the preamp tubes i've tried various power tubes and honestly i don't even think i know what's in there right now um something along the equivalent of a, of a mullard and I got, I got one new guitar that i don't think you've seen there was a fan that sent me the telecaster body that was painted very, very accurately, like that colorful dragon telecaster that Paige played in the earlier. And he was just a super fan, and he did a little bit of woodworking, but he did a very nice job with the body. And the wood he used was catalpa, which is interesting because in my neighborhood here in Chicago, we have a lot of big catalpa trees. So the catalpa is a really good combination of you know the harder sound and the darker sound. It's super lightweight. You know the, he did it as a huge favor, obviously, but then I was somewhat obligated to do the rest. So I think I spent maybe seven hundred bucks to put all the rest of the guitar together. But I play it all the time. I really like it a lot. And then you've seen my Les Paul. My Les Paul's a two thousand two Sunburst. It's just, it's perfect for this gig, you know, very reliable. I hardly ever even do anything to it. And then I've got the, um, the double neck, which again was just kind of a lucky story. I happened upon it because some guy at a guitar, uh, my tech had it at a guitar shop and whoever the owner was didn't want it anymore and sold it to him for a good price. So I kind of lucked into that. You know, I've got that Dan Electro 5090C 
which I use on a few things. Sometimes cashmere. I, I've got I've got a, a Dan Lecture. I think it's that uh, that model, or is it? I I can't remember the exact model number of it, but it's the same one that um, Sid Barrett used back in the day. Um, so I think it's very similar, and it's it's a wonderful guitar. It's wonderful. Yeah, and guitar. they're you know they're two hundred fifty bucks. They're so cheap. They are really cheap. I mean, when I saw the price of it, I just grabbed it, and I tell you what. Not only does it sound perfect whenever we do any early Floyd stuff, but I'm also using it at the beginning of our current show, which I'm sure you're going to see later this year when we come to Chicago. Um, I, I use it in the first song. I have it on a, on, a, on a guitar case, which is on a keyboard stand, and I'm using it for a slide. And where it's got such oh. a flat neck... And it's, it just sounds absolutely beautiful. It's got, so it's, it's, it's got a really mid-scooped, hollow sound. I'm sure, you know, they, they all sound the same. It's, it's, and it's so unique. You couldn't use another instrument and make it sound a bit like a Dan Electro. It's just they're, they're so cheap. But I think that's part of what gives them their, their individual unique tone. So yeah, I'm totally with you yeah. on that one. Your your Les Paul as well. I remember that being particularly lovely. I never used to like Les Pauls at all. I really, anyone who's who's ever seen any of my things about guitars, um, you know, any of the videos we've put up has probably seen that I've got. I had loads of Fenders and Telecasters, uh, loads of Strats and Telecasters, but um, I never got into Les Pauls, and then all of a sudden that's flourished, and and now, mm. you know, I've, I. I love them and, and, and I don't know whether touring with you kind of did that because I didn't really have it. I had one very cheap Les Paul that I used for one song before that, but I, I remember your Les Paul was, was particularly nice. Well, it, it, thanks. They Again, the guitars just kind of come into your life, you know. Uh, I don't know if I've ever really set out to say, I'm going to get this guitar today. They just, I, I wandered into a guitar shop one day and that guitar was hanging on the wall and I, I, I mean, I literally borrowed another guy's Les Paul when we first started doing this group. I didn't even own one myself. What about your pedals that you use? Because I remember you, you had some really nice um, pedals on your, on your board. Yeah, the, the main uh, boost pedal that I use for leads is a, it's a, it's a turbo rat with the turbo setting off. And that one I had sent into some guy down in Missouri, JHS, and he did some mods. I don't even know if the switch works anymore. But I, I generally run the distortion setting very low, so it's mostly just a clean boost for the solos. Um, I've got a, a very, very ancient uh, Thomas organ crybaby wah pedal, which really works good. I mean, there are some, some key uses of a wah pedal and some of the Zeppelin material. Well, Jimmy Page just, used it as, as like a treble boost. I mean, like on Whole Lot of Love, the main solo on that is just played with the wah up to the up to the top with the treble boost, just, just boosting. Yep. That's exactly time. what I do. And, and that's, and I mean, and it's not even used like a wah half the time. It's, it's just on. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you wouldn't necessarily know that unless unless you'd really listened carefully because because you could probably get that sound with an eq pedal or something like that 
Yeah, I, that was something that, you know, you figure out along the way. Like, how is he getting that searing, trebly tone? And uh, sure enough, step on your wah pedal. Oh, there it is, you know. Did you ever but, hear, going, going around the internet a while back, there was a, a, a multi-track of Whole Lot of Love from the original tapes? And uh, a, friend, a friend of mine um, had a copy and was playing it to me one night. And that was amazing to listen to. And you could actually hear where he's doing those solos, like before it, where he wants it to be quiet to the tape. He brings the wah down to the, to the kind of the lowest level. So the, the sound's a lot bassier. Um, and you can hear all the hiss and the noise of his guitar with that kind of sound and then just before the solo he pushes it right up to the top and you, the, the noise becomes very very shrill and then he plays all his solo with it right up the top and pulls it back and it's almost like a volume pedal he's yeah. using it to kind of boost it for the solos and then brings it back when he's not playing and you can hear when you solo the track of it you can hear all of that going on in the background it's well, amazing if you could send that to me I would love to hear I, that I don't have a copy of it but I will um, uh, of course I won't because that would be completely illegal. There is no way on a podcast that I'm going to say to you that I will <laughs> get you a copy and send it to you because that is definitely not going to happen, Paul. All right. Oh, of course. Of no, course. that'll never yeah. happen. Great. That will never, that will never, that will never, never happen. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, it's little things. So what other pedals, um, did you have? So you've, you've got, you've got the, the rat and the, the wire and. Yeah, I have a, a really cheap digital delay a digitech i think it's a dx9 but honestly it works just right there are two settings that i use on that and it gives me pretty much all of the delay sounds that i need occasionally on some of the songs that we don't play that often i, I might mess with it but i it's set to a long delay for the bow solo you know the yeah and then and I use that delay on a couple of other solos. Don't really use it all that much. And then when we do 10 Years Gone and uh, Achilles' Last Stand, there are those long, delayed uh, solos where you'll hear the guitar played and then it'll kind of play in harmony against the delay. So it works really good for the ending solo sections in... In those two songs and that's it and then i've got a, a the freeze pedal uh i wanted to have a way to smooth out the intro on in the light you know i can i use the bow for that intro and it's pretty hard to play that long and have it be that steady and consistent so i use a freeze pedal to kind of freeze that bowed bit um and I use that in some of the sections of the bow solo in Days and Confused every once in a while. I've got a Custom Shop Phase 90, which is a really great pedal. Uh, it just, and again, it has almost the exact same sound that I need for, for some of the uh, parts where Paige would use a phase shifter. Uh, let's see, I've got a tremolo pedal. Yep. Again, it's just a cheap boss tremolo pedal that I use for a few sections of a few songs. I have a boss distortion pedal. And again, it's also the turbo with the turbo turned off that I use on a couple of solos. And then I added that pitchfork pedal prior, just prior to joining uh, the tour with you guys. And I use that for the high 
uh, octave at the beginning of Nobody's Fault But Mine and Achilles' Last Stand. So there you go. That's a, that's pretty much it. How, I would how, be, how much are you trying to actually recreate the tones from a studio album, or are you going more off live versions, or are you using your own artistic license as long as you get the vibe across, then that's all right, or are you being slavish to any one source? I think generally I'm just trying to make it sound as good as it can because we're a live rock show. I'm I'm not specifically trying to directly emulate any particular recording, but paying attention to the pickup selectors is one of the main things. You know, in Heartbreaker, for, for example, he keeps going back and forth from the neck pickup to the bridge pickup. And then it seemed like around 1973, 1974, he started to use the middle pickup uh, selector, which is both pickups. And then what I like about that and with the Les Paul is you can roll off the volume of either the neck or the bridge and get almost this infinite palette of tones from that. So for example, on Black Dog, I've got it on the middle pickup selector and I have my neck pickup rolled down to like eight uh, and the bridge pickup at 10. And so that does kind of sound like, you know, the way that it was recorded. But honestly, when Paige recorded that song, he went, he plugged straight into the board. So it's a really unique sound. And so I'm not necessarily trying to emulate the studio sound of that. I'm just trying to find the thing that works best for playing it live. That suppose, um, that can work in some ways better for Led Zeppelin music than it can for Pink Floyd music because Pink Floyd music, the soundscape of it is much more, it's, it's much less geared towards a kind of just a live sort of big rock sound. You know, there's a lot more layers and they, they used a lot more trickery, I suppose. That was, um, that was one way of looking at it. But I suppose that, that gives you a certain freedom, which must be quite nice. Yeah, you know, the very first time that we met you guys, we were standing off to the side of the stage in Toronto at the Molson Center and listening to your sound check. And all of us were like, wow, listen to the guitar tones. <laughs> because it's so important for Pink Floyd songs. I'll, I'll have to show you my, uh, my, sort of my new rig. It's improved quite a bit since, um, since you last saw it. I'm now yeah. using two two Supro amps in uh, in stereo, obviously, with the stereo effects going through that, and um, and they're mic'd up. And there's some other trickery going on, but it's it's uh, mm. I think it's vastly improved on when you last saw us. So, I would <laughs> yeah, I would like to see that. I was amazed at how you were able to get the sounds that you got because you had that one old Fender Twin sitting there. I wasn't even sure if it was on or not. Yeah, but the way the way I um the way I did it with that was um yeah, I had the guitar I can't remember the last time you saw it or what year I introduced that, but um yeah, for a while basically I had all the the the, sort of the guitar going into the different pedals through a pedal switcher. So so when I selected a patch it would select the right pedals in the combination that I wanted. And then it would push that sound through I've got like a Boss multi effects unit, the GT Pro, which is which is kind of a Swiss Army knife. It does does a bit of everything, 
And then from that, I'd go to the amp. So from that point, it would all be mono. Everything was mono. And then the amp would be mic'd up. So you'd hear the amp on stage and then the amp would be mic'd up and that would go into a line six unit that I've got. Um, that I'd then have stereo effects added to the mic of the amp. So things like Leslie simulators and, and, and you know, stereo delay or, or chorus. So it would probably be quite weird listening at that point to have listening, uh, listened to the signal direct from the amp because you would have only got half the sound. And I changed away from that. I, w I wasn't very happy with that setup. I mean, it was, it did sound good, but um, I'd bought a Supro amp after seeing and playing through a, a Supro Thunderbolt amp in, um, in Canada, in Montreal, in a shop called Steve's Music. It's a great shop up there. Um, I tried out this, uh, this Supro Thunderbolt amp, which was an amp that I understand Jimmy Page used to use back in the late 60s. Um, yep. Uh, and, and I plugged into it, and all it's got is a volume and tone. And I just turned it up, put, kind of put the tone in the middle and turned it up and played a strat through it and did the intro of Shine On. And it just sounded amazing. It was just like this perfect little blues combo. You, could, you couldn't have asked for more. And I haven't looked back. The The sound is just stunning compared to what I had last time you would have seen us, which was probably 2016. Did you come and see us last year, Paul? Or was um, it the year before? Where did we saw you when you came through at that Hammond yeah. Casino. Yeah. That was 2016, wasn't it? Well, we played with you in... The big tour we did was 2015. We did a few shows kind of across the country <clears throat> with you in 2016. Yeah. And then, yeah, we came to see you at that Hammond show. I, yes. Where so did that, you that, play that, that was, that was all the time when I was using that one twin and the, and the mic and, um, the whole thing just wasn't cutting it for me. And, and I got those suit pros. So you haven't heard those yet. So, uh, cause I, I used them um, first in 2017. I, th I think you're going to really notice the difference. It's just, wider and bigger and and, and yeah. they just they just worked for me it was it was it it was more gilmore than the twin that i had much more well i look forward to hearing that you know yeah. one of the things that i found is that this the speaker that you use is so important for the tone yes uh and it's it, sometimes the amp is what it is but the speaker's can really change the way that uh, it sounds both on stage and through a microphone and out to the audience. So I did put a couple of red coat eminence speakers, which are, you know, a British voiced version of the eminence. And I put those in the top part of the one slant cabinet and it gives me a little bit more overhead of like clean before breakup. So yeah, I, I look forward to hearing that. I, in fact, I almost kind of want to go over to my local guitar shop and check out a Supra and see if oh, they got honest, one. Honestly, I found lots of weird things that, that make make my Gilmore tone sound more like Gilmore um, because of the way I play. So, I mean, that's the thing. You put one guitarist through another guitarist rig and they don't sound the same. I've heard interviews where, where where David Gilmore will pick up a guitar and he'll just have a random strat that's lying around plugged into a little combo. And he'll sound like him because he's him. Yeah. 
And that's that's the same of any player. Brian May will pick up a guitar and play something and he'll sound like Brian May. And, and these are very dis- distinctive people. And I think not enough credit is actually given to the fingers. Mm. And, and I completely agree with you. I, and I've heard Jeff Beck can pick up you know, a $200 Strat and it sounds just like Jeff Beck. So, so, so what do you listen to outside of that now? Are there any new bands or kind of classic rock bands? You've, you've mentioned kind of Rush and Black Sabbath and stuff like that, but is there anything kind of left of field that you're into that, that, you know, honestly, I have, I, I don't really have the attention span these days to be digging through record store bins and looking for those, new bands like i like i clearly did when i was younger you know my kids will play new music for me what and, are they <laughs> well my oldest daughter is really into a lot of good music and she used to make me these um you know these mix discs of songs and she would always say dad i know you're gonna like all these songs and it didn't even really matter who the band was she just knew what kind of song i liked it could be old, it could be new, it could be country, it could be rock, it could be pop. Uh, she just, she knew my taste in songs. Now, my younger kids, they <laughs> they listen to the pop radio. You know, they, they haven't developed any kind of their own unique musical taste and sense yet. But, but lately at home, we've been listening to The Who a lot. And I find that Tommy, from beginning to end, it just sounds better to me than it's ever sounded before. And then we were on a vacation recently, and we went all the way through Quadrophenia. And I think when we got done with it, we put it back on and we listened to it again. It just—I mean—it's so regal. I was always a you know a big Who fan, but I think I'm liking them more and more as time goes by. And from time to time, I've got a friend of mine who collects a lot of the old blues albums and 45s and he'll put everything together for me on these discs so I can listen to old obscure blues recordings you know from the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s for as long as I want he's given me so much material um and you know another record that we've been putting on a lot and this is all in line with the old classic stuff the live UFO album right it's called Strangers in the Night and Nancy had, we were at a thrift store not too long ago and we picked up a Sinatra record, Strangers in the Night. She came home and she put it on and she looked on the turntable and there was this record on there, Strangers in the Night. And she didn't realize it was the UFO. But boy, that's a really great live album. A lot of really good songs on there. And other than that, you know what, Dave? I would say if we're listening to music around our house, it's probably country a lot of the time just because it sounds so good. <laughs> I, I, I grew up um, listening to a certain amount of country, but it's probably a different, different kind or a slightly narrower amount of it than uh, than you get there. I mean, literally, there's some places in America where where there's two types of music: country and western. Yeah, that's right. And that's it. it and uh, for vast stretches of America, and, and you you, know, you go you go you know you go on a drive. I've, I've got a very very good friend in uh, Texas, in uh, just outside Dallas, called Bobby. Hi, Bobby, if you're listening. Um, he's he's a wonderful friend. I'm going to see him later this year. I'm staying at his house. And uh, 
and we we drive sometimes and you know if the radio's on or whatever it's just these country stations playing just endless songs and they've all got great stories to them you know and and beautiful guitar work and i'm a big fan of telecasters as you know yeah um and some of the telecaster tones you're getting on that stuff is 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 beautiful you know it's really nice so i mean i wouldn't say i'm a i'm a country fan to the point where i could list you off a list of country artists i like i've always liked the sound of it and i think a lot of people a lot of people put it down or or or, or laugh at it as a genre and I, and i don't really know why because you know of course there's a stereotypical side of it there's a stereotypical side to everything yeah and if if we're listening to country it's not modern pop radio country for sure no you're talking about but really I'm, much I'm, care talking, for I'm that. not talking about modern country i'm talking about old country the sort of stuff my mum played me off vinyls that she had in the 60s and the 70s and yeah waylon jennings merle haggard willie nelson johnny cash i was when actually when we were on tour with you guys i stopped in at this record store in nashville and they had one of waylon jennings old stratocasters in there and it, it was the kind of place where you could just walk right on and pick it up and play it. <laughs> Who did the song uh, Hillbilly Highway? I mean, uh, I, was that Steve Earle? Or? I, you know what? I'm not 100% sure. I need, to, I need to look that up now. That's going to annoy me. One second. <laughs> Hillbilly Highway. Because I, I well, loved that. I loved that song as a kid. Yeah, Steve Earle, Hillbilly Highway. Yeah, he's got some good stuff. You know, and if you put on Spotify, actually Steve Earle is a pretty good station. And then you get to hear the other stuff. Or if you put on Waylon Jennings on Spotify, <laughs> you'll definitely hear some really good stuff. Cuz Chicago's a funny place for 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 music. I I find compared to some of the rest of the states cuz I mean it's 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 a very musical city and you can see that going around. There's lots of musical themed things in in restaurants and there's loads of of blues places obviously that have bands playing in the in the corner while you eat your food or sit and eat your ribs i used to love doing that um but it's got a certain amount of the musical feel of the south but obviously it's it's not um it's certainly not in the south and i know that from from winters in chicago it's absolutely freezing so 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 where where would you put it in that i i don't i don't understand the roots of it well, just very diverse, you know, house music and, you know, and a lot of like the urban and soul stuff has origins in Chicago too. Um, you know, from more, from my perspective, there was the roots of the blues that came from Mississippi, Texas, and the South, and that originated probably in the late 1800s. And it was you know, the gospel preachers that were singing a lot of this material, Blind Willie Johnson and people like that, Sunhouse. And then that migrated north with Muddy Waters and Holland Wolf and Junior Wells and Buddy Guy and all of the other guys that, you know, that migrated north. And they were working men that played the music, but many of them ended up in Chicago. And so... For me, Chicago is about the origin of the electric blues. But there's a lot more to it than that as well. You know, we've got a thriving metal scene, and Bruce is really in touch with that. Pumpkins came out of, uh, Smashing Pumpkins came out of Chicago as well, and that was yep. 
I suppose people would label that as grunge back in the day. I think it's uh, it's probably classic rock now, isn't it? <laughs> that's yeah. the, that's the thing. But I mean, so I mean, a lot of different and diverse stuff has come out of Chicago, and it's 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 got definitely got a feel to it that's not like certain other cities that are um, kind of in the same region. Yeah, one you know, one group that I uh, really still enjoy listening to, Cheap Trick. They made some great records, and I think at the time we would call that power pop or you know whatever we called it. It wasn't classic rock anymore, and it wasn't punk rock. But uh, Cheap Trick really made some great records. Being in a band and playing all over the place, as we both do, um, you run into interesting people. Um, we had um, some questions from our fans in our first podcast where Jason was talking about a guy that had, uh, had basically, I can't remember the exact story, but he'd written them a letter and said that he'd actually written all of Pink Floyd's material and somehow channeled it all to David Gilmore by God and he wanted to sue for copyright or something. I, I genuinely can't remember the full story, but he's quite a crazy guy. And, and there was another guy who who had actually woken up from a coma listening to us. It's quite inspiring when you hear from fans and also quite crazy sometimes. Do you, do you get any of that? Have you had any kind of crazy interactions with fans where they've got any wacky concepts for you or anything like that? Mm, yeah. <laughs> There's a few things like that, that will come along. There was a guy that he we met him after a show and he was very, very serious and he really had something very, very important that he wanted to share with me, and he had brought it along with him, and he didn't really show me what it was at first, but he said he had found an entire Led Zeppelin record that he, only he knew about, and it had never been released. And I listened, and I listened, and I said, okay, all right, well, that sounds really interesting. And then he kind of pulled it out from behind me. He said, you know, I just, why don't I give this to you? I really want you to know. Maybe you can do something with it. Well, it was the record sleeve liner for In Through the Outdoor, <laughs> but apparently he didn't realize that that record actually came out and sold millions of copies. But um, <laughs> Was he living under a rock? Was, <laughs> that the uh, there, was, there was actually a guy who changed his name to Led Zeppelin II, and uh, unfortunately he died. Uh, so there's no more Led Zeppelin II, the man. Um, you know, we have interesting characters. We've got a guy named Papa Smurf that uh, always shows up in front of St. Andrew's Hall in Detroit when we play there, and he's he's a pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good talker. I'm sure that we give him quite a few dollars in the course of the evening, and that's kind of his game. But Papa Smurf is always there. You can always rely on him, and he does kind of keep. And it keeps the order around that place too, because everybody else knows him as well. I just, you know, we have a lot of interesting conversations with people who are Led Zeppelin fans after the shows, and they've all kind of got their own stories. And uh, and of course, since I last saw you've had a bit of a lineup change as well. You've had a yeah. Um, well, you guys met Ian, you know, and Ian was a great drummer, and we're on good terms. I just heard from Ian the other day, uh, but he's busy do, with his tour bus company now. And we, you know, set out to find a new drummer at the end of 
2016, and we had some really good drummers come out. But there was one guy that really stood out. Uh, his name is Greg Fundus, and boy, Greg is really good. I mean, he just he makes our band a lot better. We all play better. I feel like I my solos are more fluent and kind of dynamic because of what he's doing, you know, in the background of the solo. Uh, super positive guy, really great to have around. It just he's an outstanding drummer and he can play any style of music. Uh, the drum solo in our set has doubled in length and sometimes more than that because it's one of the highlights of our show. He's so good. Um, and we did something that was really interesting back at the end of May on what would have been John Bonham's 70th birthday. We hosted an event in Chicago at the Metro. And we had, I think it was eight or nine different drummers uh, that joined and everybody would take a song or two and Greg organized that whole thing. So that was a really positive experience. No costumes for us. We just went out there as as we are, you know, and we build it as Led Zeppelin II presents John Bonham's birthday party, but very fun night. It, the, the Moby Dick was epic. Everybody took a shot. I hope I get a chance to see you with your with your new drummer. How's, uh, how's Matt and Bruce? Are they, they Yeah, they're great. Um, the last we uh, played a bunch of shows in the early part of the summer, and we're all kind of being lazy here in August. But uh, schedule picks back up a little bit in September and toward the end of the year. Cool. Yeah. Where, where are you playing then? What's what's your next uh, what's your next show? Give us a plug. Yeah, our next show is going to be in New Mexico at the Rio Ruidoso Downs Racetrack, and it's a big motorcycle rally. And have you got a few shows lined up for that? Um for the rest of the year well we're we're already looking uh you know into january uh we've got a couple of things booked we uh we had hoped that we were going to be doing a a european tour this fall it's kind of coming up quick so it might move into next year but earlier this year we did a lot of international stuff we did a, a tour in israel maybe the best tour we've ever had in terms of just night after night um how many people were coming out and the, the reaction that we were getting from the crowd. And we did a show in just a one-off show in Argentina, if you can believe that. And we've done a few shows up in, uh, in Canada or in the earlier part of this year too. But our schedule is kind of being reassembled right now. We don't have a lot, a lot of stuff, but we know that there's going to be a lot coming up. Well, that's cool. Well, I mean, we're in, uh, we're in your neck of the woods on the 11th of October. We'll be down at okay. the, uh, Chicago Theatre, which um, I think the last time I played that was 2014. Chicago uh, Theatre, wow. That's yeah, and great. then we did 2015, we did the one with you, which was open air. I can't remember the name of the Yeah, the venue. call that they're Northern all named Island. After a bank. Yeah, they're all named after a bank or something, or a film company. or, or I think they call it Huntington Bank Pavilion, but right. yeah, the name is constantly changing. So it'll be yeah, it'll be nice to to go back there. I've got very fond memories of the place, and um, well, yeah, I, I haven't been. To, calendar. Yeah, so that's the eleventh, um, and it'll be lovely to see you and catch up with you and uh, and see everyone as well. I hope you will come down. We can, Absolutely, uh, I yeah. will see you then. I will see you then. Well, Paul, it's been lovely 
chatting to you and very interesting hearing all about the uh the band and uh we must do it again i'd like to do an actual face-to-face podcast you me and steve having a bit more of a geek out about guitars and stuff when we can do it face-to-face i think that would be a a fun thing to do so maybe we could uh schedule that in for around that time we might even have a day off in chicago so maybe we can fit it in of course you've got one of the best guitar shops in the world in chicago as well haven't you chicago music exchange yeah that's that's not bad it's a good <laughs> shop it's a good shop i'm looking forward to visiting that well look i'll see you when uh when we're over there and um it's been lovely chatting yeah i really appreciate you setting this up thanks a lot no problem